0: from the salem center for policy at the university of texas at austin welcome to an episode of policy in pieces i'm your host scott Bogus.
1: well-intended people have ended up making it really hard to do good change and even good change that is consensus good and it's not just adding regulation which is like sort of a standard republican way of thinking that we're going to slow everything down that's good because it'll stop regulation well guess what it also slows down deregulation it slows down re-regulation it slows down any change of any kind and i the the circular to me is just one example of of how that um, slows things down
0: that was harvard law school professor john coates talking about OMB Circular A4, on the role of cost benefit analysis in financial regulation, and in particular, the unintended consequence of well-intended government efforts to strengthen the requirements. He joins this episode to talk about his recent experience at the SEC, where during a short span, he led the rulemaking efforts in the division of corporation finance, and then served as the agency's general counsel. He explains what it was like to work from a senior role on the inside after years of advocating for change from the outside, and shares his views on a host of issues from the shortcomings of the SEC's funding model and the difficulty of staffing long-term initiatives to the most recent agency proposal on proxy advisory firms. My returning co-host today is McCombs Business School student, Nathan Graber. John, hello. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And I have a returning co-host for the third time. Nathan, welcome back. Thank you for having me back on. So, John, you just left the SEC. Uh, you're back at Harvard. And, well, I'm going to let Nathan start us off. We've got a lot of questions we have for you today. And, uh, Nathan, where do you think we should start?
2: So I'd like to start right there. Would you mind telling us about how you became a Harvard Law School professor and what made you leave your career at Wachtell Lipton?
1: Sure. I started teaching part-time as a Wachtell lawyer, as a favor to a professor from law school who wanted to adopt a baby. And in New York, you get put on a list and they never tell you where you are on the list. And she was worried it would, the baby would arrive in the middle of the semester. So she said, come and just sit and you don't have to do anything unless the baby arrives, in which case. Um, and then I fell in love with teaching. So I I taught actually so for several years as a, as an associate there and then as a partner. And then after making partner, that's kind of one of those moments where you you pull up a little bit and think, what do I want to do? And the firm was pretty good at letting people kind of try things and letting you come back if it didn't work out, as long as it wasn't with a direct competitor. So we had people go to banks uh, and come back. And so I said, I'll throw my hat in the ring and see what teaching full-time is like. And And I have not gone back
0: uh, except to visit.
1: That's how I became a Harvard Law Professor.
0: So how would you describe your research and teaching interests?
1: Um, I I came in uh, you know, kind of planning to teach much of what I had done at Wachtel. So that was a combination of general corporate governance practice, um, advising boards, typically management about how to interact with their shareholders and what the laws were, what the norms were, as well as, you know, probably Slightly more in terms of hours, mergers and acquisitions, transactions between usually public but but often private to companies, um, slightly overweighted in the the banking space, financial institutions, but also doing a a range of other industries. Um, Came down to Texas for um, deals involving Valero uh, is the ones that stick out in my mind. I spent a lot of time in San Antonio and Austin.
0: Well, that's good for all of our Texas listeners. So you you just recently finished a tour at the SEC. You spent some time there first as the acting director of the Division of Corporation Finance, and then when a permanent head was found, you slotted over to be the general counsel. And I'm wondering, like, how did all that come about?
1: So from my perspective, I got a call from Commissioner Allison Lee, who I had met while I was serving on the Investor Advisory Committee at the SEC, something I did for a few years. And she, this was after the election, so it was clear she was going to end up being acting chair uh, after the inauguration. And she pitched to me, there was too much that needed to get done to have the agency just kind of go sideways until a full-time chair was confirmed Jay Clayton had taken until August. And so, you know, eight months of kind of going sideways from a policy perspective to her did not seem good. And ironically, there was a silver lining to COVID, which was that no one was in the office, so I couldn't go in the office so I could work from home, Uh, which since I live in Boston with three teenagers was kind of important to the deal cuz if it had meant relocating i don't think i could have done it so that was the pitch and it took a little thinking and conversation and discussion with my wife and, and and a little bit with my kids but in the end i decided okay so you know four to six months i'll go and help and kind of just get some things going it was always meant to be that then when gary became chair in april i think it was april earlier than we I think had expected. He then made a pitch to me to stay on as general counsel. He first wanted me to stay on indefinitely. And I explained about the moving part and how that would be hard with three teenagers and, and, and a wife who didn't want to move to DC. So in the end, he, he, he as, a, as a good Goldman banker, he had multiple fallbacks, I think, ex-Goldman banker. Um, his fallback was... Uh, until he could find somebody who would be a permanent general counsel and and that's basically what we did I ended up leaving a little earlier than my successor needed to come in because he uh, wanted to take a little time off between his stint at the CFTC uh, where he came from so that's that's kind of the story you know from my perspective the motive really was other than just you know helping the agency overall was I, I I did think and very much agree with both Allison and Gary that the agency is 10 years behind in helping investors understand human capital-related valuation and climate change risk in particular. And those two topics um, were ones we had kicked around at the Investor Advisory Committee. Uh, They were things that I knew Allison she told, you know, explicitly had said to me while I was on the advisory committee, sh- those are things she cared about. I didn't know for sure how Gary was going to think about those things, but I was reasonably confident that, that he would have some interest. I had heard him give a speech about human capital in particular, a version of which he's repeated many times, you know, which is that as a banker at Goldman, the idea that you would do a valuation and ignore the value that the people of the organization add by digging into – metrics that are not commonly publicly disclosed were just they he would have been fired and like the and that was back in the early 90s so I, I knew kind of he he would be in alignment there i wasn't sure about climate change but in any event i wanted to at least get those initiatives going that was that was kind of the, the pull
0: so you're an academic you worked in industry but most recently an academic and there's been a trend towards more academics and leadership positions and i'm just wondering is how are you received? Is that a good thing? Are there trade offs? And you know what makes a good academic and government?
1: How I was received, you should you should ask other people. I mean, Gary wanted me to stay on, so I suppose it couldn't have been too bad. Uh, you know, academics have cycled in and out of government for a long time. You're right; there probably is a tick up now. Part of that is because, especially in the SEC space, and this would carry over to other parts of the financial markets and regulators of the financial markets there's maybe a little bit exaggerated worry about people who've spent a lot of time in in uh in industry working for the regulated entities and you know kind of if you if you take all of those people off the table who's left that actually thinks hard about financial regulation well academics maybe some think tech people maybe some people who are already in government but it's not a giant pool and so i think that that the increase in partisanship a little bit and just a more general breakdown of trust since the financial crisis, I think are probably contributing to that trend let. Um, in terms of like fit, I think it's very different across different people. There are some academics who really should not do it, not because they're not lovely people, but they're just not suited to manage. And management is a big part of what you end up doing when you come in at a senior level in a political position. And, Other academics are so maybe usefully devoted to certain ideas as academics. It kind of, that's the engine that kind of keeps them going in their teaching and research. But in government, you kind of have to be more practical than that. You got all kinds of different winds buffeting you, ranging from politics to funding to budgets to what's going on in the markets. And you can't kind of just stick to your one idea and expect to get anywhere. So, there are certain kinds of academics i would personally advise not to do it and the, but there are a lot that that are i think perfectly suited to it and they do add something i think you know the academic tendency what makes a good academic in my view is someone willing to really think from first principles and 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 at least go through that exercise in almost everything they can and i think that's very useful for regulatory agencies because they don't. They get in the habit of we, we keep doing what we're doing and they 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 lose in the midst of time why they're doing what they're doing. I think sometimes all organizations, not just um, regulatory agencies, I think. And so bringing in people who will just ask questions like why are we doing this? And are we sure that's still a good idea? and And can we trace the origin? I think that's a healthy thing to happen. And I also think just the different pool of people is probably a good mix. I will say to go back to where I started. I think the fear of people with some industry experience is probably overstated. I think there are lots of, you know, people who would make for great public servants who are currently sitting in investment banks and law firms and consulting firms and to kind of rule them all out simply because that's currently where they're earning their money to me seems like a uh, an overreaction. But
0: is that implicit right now or is it explicit? Do agencies and agency leaders say they're just not going to bring those people in?
1: Um, I, I don't think there's a per se rule, and and, there, and you can find people that you know Gary's appointed recently that like the chair of the PCAOB who just got picked come, is coming straight from a law firm. But but I think across the agencies there is a, a you know an awareness that if all of their major picks are coming from the regulated industries, that would probably trigger some.
0: And you're referring to Erica Williams, who did spend a number of years in government at the SEC, so it's not as if they were a pure industry person.
1: Right, and so that, that's a good illustration of kind of, I think, a healthy nuance. Like, if, if what you're looking for is commitment to public service, there's a variety of ways that can be shown at different times in someone's career, and it shouldn't just be like, what's your current job as a litmus test? which unfortunately I think some people kind of have in their head.
2: You previously, as you just mentioned, were a member of the SEC's Investor Advisory Committee. Uh, What was your role on this committee? Why did you serve and what were you able to accomplish?
1: I came in at at a time when there was some turnover, so I was immediately pulled into helping chair one of the subcommittees on corporate governance, sort of the institute. I think they call it Institutions as owner subcommittee as opposed to as purchaser and as and then there's a markets subcommittee and so i got pulled into helping set the agenda for the overall committee in, in in the corporate governance space and 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 other topics that long-term owners continually want the sec to to deal with so that's the role i did it because i had been long enough in academia that i was you know i i was Worrying a little bit that I'd gotten a little bit out of date with what was a lively um, public policy set of questions, you know, you can happily work in academia and ignore the real world for for many purposes, uh, except maybe whatever you're currently doing your research on. And then that there can be a lot of change going on in very closely related areas that you just ignore. And I, I that was the main impulse was to kind of just level set myself after you know many years of not having been in any kind of practical setting. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, honestly, because the committee is big enough and has a variety of different kinds of investor representatives on it that I, I learned a lot even separate from the official work we did. And then uh, and then the other thing I would say is I got to know a lot more of the staff through that. They help the committee. They support the committee, the staff of the, of the SEC, that is, and they help us set up panels. And then we they, we regularly interact with the commissioners. They're required to listen to us by statute. Um, they don't have to do anything we advise, but they have to listen. And they have to actually respond to the formal recommendations. And so there is a pretty healthy back and forth between the staff, the commissioners, and the committee that I had not – maybe it was a little overly cynical. I thought it was just going to be kind of like, you know, we'll talk and nobody will pay any attention. But actually, people – do pay attention, particularly to the topics, maybe not so much the specific outcomes that we vote on, but framing a question as important, generally speaking, helps move the overall commission's agenda a bit.
2: How different was it being on the inside guiding the work as opposed to being on the outside advocating for it, comparing when you were on the IAC to when you were serving in the general counsel? It it was
1: very different. I've said in a couple of settings, and I'll say here. For me, the biggest surprise slash takeaway was something that I knew, but it's just 10 times more so than I thought, and that's the staff is just way overburdened. I mean, the the theoretical list of things that actually people think the staff does, much less expects or wants them to do, is much longer than what they can practically accomplish coupled with something i also knew but i didn't really fully appreciate just how significant this is the funding process for the sec they're on an annual budget cycle with congress that's too short in my opinion for some purposes like you know you can't commit to five year projects that might actually be good because you have to keep going back to congress annually and you never know exactly how that's going to come out it's also too long in in another way because in order to hire, let's suppose you decide, and suppose everyone agrees that the agency needs 20 new people of a certain kind in a certain area to do something to respond to the world. It takes 18 months minimum before you can build that into a budget request, get Congress to approve it, get HR to set up the hiring process and actually start hiring people. So for me, the combination of just how big the role overload is for the staff plus the the mismatch between the funding model and the day to day work were, it just, that's sort of invisible to most people. I mean, you kind of get the sense that they're overworked at times as you observe them, but you don't really feel it and you don't know the practical payoffs of it. So, I mean, I'll give you just a, a simple example. If a new rule that somebody envisioned, you know, that one of my colleagues or one of your colleagues came up with, like again attracted total consensus everybody agreed like this is a great new idea the sec should do it the current sec staffing situation is such that unless it was also clearly more important than everything else already on the agenda it just wouldn't get done because they just are too overworked and too um slotted into the existing workflows and one particular piece of it that that i maybe should have thought about but i didn't beforehand was that the IPO boom that started, you know, roughly a year, year and a half ago, coupled with the SPAC piece, which was alongside of it, that surge in work that the staff does to process those transactions, meant that it was gonna, you know, almost inevitably given the budget process, crowd out all kinds of other work, because the agency's committed to certain kinds of reviews. When you magnify demand by a 100, well, the workload goes up by 100, the working day does not go up by 100 and you can't hire more people. So that just means less is getting done in other areas. Did
0: you appreciate that when you came in to be acting Corp Fin director that you were going to have 500 staff whose sole job was (laughs) to review disclosure documents? I I knew
1: that that the review program was a core part of Corp Fin and I knew that would occupy a lot of, you know, what I would be overseeing. But what I did not think through until I got in place was the point of the, you know that I was just ending on there that that a massive surge in market activity coupled with a commitment to do certain things would just mean displacement of all kinds of other things so I, I sort of knew there'd be a lot of that but i had i spent probably half of my time while i was in corp Finn just sort of managing through the indirect effects of that surge and that was not did so
0: you know you were going to be a good manager you said before that you wouldn't advise somebody who's an academic and can't manage You wouldn't advise them to do the job and you took it. Did you know you had that skill and could do it? I know it was a little
1: strong there. I, I, I hoped I did. Um, I, one of the things I've done at the law school for more than 10 years now is helped manage actually, as well as teach in executive ed courses for law firm and legal department managers. And a lot of the education we do is borrowed from the business school in, in slightly different settings, and then applied to legal context. So we had been teaching legal management, uh, and I've been teaching that. And I, I hoped absorbing some of the lessons and then applying them to our little startup, our little uh, our executive education unit within it. And then the and and also over time, the dean had pulled me into more general managerial roles. Now managing academics is very different than managing people in a, a regulatory agency, although there are some commonalities they you know they they don't quite have tenure but there's something sim- similar to that they're not there for the money which is largely true of academics too so there's some ways in which i kind of knew i came in with some useful experience and hoped that 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 would all work out well
0: so you you also mentioned that It's hard to write a rule because they're competing with other rules and there's only so many rules you can write. And I think I also heard you say there's another dimension too, which is training of staff. You've got a great idea and you don't have staff in place who have the requisite knowledge. That could be challenging. I want to give one example, digital assets. Uh, That's a very confusing technology to people who haven't seen it for the first time. And it's in the news a lot today and there's been a lot of discussion about it. Like, how does the SEC, if they want to start writing rules in this area, if they had a rule they wanted to write, could they just write it, or what sort of training and lead times required to get the right skill sets and expertise to write a rule?
1: No, that, that's a, a great example. The you know the crypto and DeFi movement, I guess you want to call it, has been around long enough now that when I came in, the agency had already built. Some internal capacity there. There was a little dedicated team uh, that originally had been in Corp Finn and then had been moved into being a separate little agency wide support group that still exists. And they, they were like their full time job, at least the top two or three of them to me seemed to be just keeping up with what was going on in the world, translating that back into useful. Information for the agency as a whole—not just rule writing, but enforcement and policy setting at the in the chair's office and legislative initiatives and all kinds of things. So that's a way in which it can happen. But you notice it—I it, alluded, you know—that had been going on for ten years by the time I came in, right? So they had they'd seen crypto coming way back, and then they finally got some people dedicated to it. And then I, I will give uh, the prior. Chair Jay Clayton and Bill Hemman, who ran Court Finn, uh, enormous credit for having, you know, kind of invested the agency's um, money and hiring in that unit, which then meant that the agency has been at least for several years now capable of writing rules if they wanted to. On the other hand, now, you know, implicit in your question is the idea that there's some natural rule to write. It's not so clear actually what that might be in that space. And I think that's actually been a bigger cause of the lack of rule writing is like, not really clear what to write. Some of the existing rule sets apply fine. Others, it's not really clear that that's the SEC's role to the extent that an activity really is not equivalent to traditional securities activities, it really ought to be for somebody else to regulate. And and between those two things, Things working okay, plus not really sure charge jurisdiction, that creates a little bit of, a, I think, a, a dilemma for the agency because it does not have clear authority over some kinds of crypto assets. And at the same time, it does have clear authority over other kinds of, of activities.
2: In June, you switched from being the acting corporate finance director to general counsel. Why did you transition into that role? And what were the differences between those two jobs?
1: I transitioned mainly because The chair, Gary Gensler, had found an excellent person to take over for me. And as you remember, when I started here, I had not really intended to stay that long in Corp Finn. So that's why I was leaving that one. However, he had not found yet somebody to play the role of general counsel. And he and I had gotten along pretty well in the first few weeks that he was on the job. And so he exercised his quite extensive persuasive powers to convince me, to convince my wife, to let me keep doing it longer. And, you know, if I had to say for me, I alluded to this a minute ago, I've been teaching general counsels of large companies for 10 years. And I thought to myself, well, it would be good to actually be a general counsel, even if for a little while, uh, in order to have some better sense of what it is that they do when I help teach them. So that was the the, the main pull for me, personally,
0: was there any particular antidote or episode or event that precipitated you deciding you got along with a chair and would stay on longer?
1: Um, you know, I'm I'm going to guess from his perspective. From my perspective, I liked his energy and the different expertise he had. He he knows lots of things that I don't about the markets that the SEC oversees and the institutions. And I knew some things he didn't. And so there was a nice complementarity there um, that made it feel like I could be useful. I, I, I knew I would be useful in court, Finn because that's the area that I've practiced in at Wachtell and that I researched in as an academic. I was less sure about the general counsel role. The longer I was in it, I would say my takeaway is, like, on some level, no one actually is competent to be a general counsel because there's just too much law. <laughs> like there are too many mm-hmm. domains of law that a general counsel, in theory, is supposed to be helping on that you can't possibly know that much about. I, I had in my time, I I was there, I was working on patent matters, on. Employment law matters on tax matters of all things. I mean, just go down the list. SEC doesn't pay taxes, but it became relevant to a case and and not, and that's, that's all separate from basic securities law. And no one securities lawyer knows all of securities law. So I I quickly realized actually the role is not about knowledge. I kind of knew that already, but it really got driven home quickly. It's really, and this finally is another answer to your question. I think Gary wasn't entirely sure about the legal advice that he'd get if it wasn't through somebody that he trusted if it was coming from the full-time long-time um staff there i think in the end his worry was overstated i think there are 99 out of 100 people that i dealt with there are really competent straight and excellent but i do think i helped him feel more comfortable with that advice because i was somebody that he picked that i came in from the outside i had not you know i i i wasn't you know, kind of entrenched in existing ways of looking at legal issues.
0: You alluded to the fact that the general counsel position is often viewed as like a personal relationship. And that leads me to something I've wondered about, even during my time at the SEC, is the general counsel, is it counsel to the chair? Is it counsel to the commission? Like, who, who are you counsel to when you're the general counsel?
1: Yeah, the job description is to the commission. So as part of the walk around I did, which is this funny process where you, you go and kind of interview with each of the commissioners for the top positions within the agency. Commissioner Roisman and Commissioner Peirce and Crenshaw and Lee were all careful to remind me of that, and I agreed, and we all agreed that I would be providing them advice and not just Gary. At the same time, everybody acknowledges that since the chair does set the agenda for the commission and also has direct Kind of line of authority over the agency as a whole, you end up spending vastly more time directly counseling him. But the main takeaway from that is, and and I did this pretty religiously, is the same information, right? Like if I'm telling Gary it's legal, I'm telling everybody it's legal. If I'm telling Gary it's got big legal risk, I'm telling everybody the same thing. So I'm not shaving the uh, the, the the advice uh, differently, which. You know, if you were really an individual lawyer for just Gary, y- you would not necessarily do it that way you would you would moderate your arguments depending on who you were talking
0: to. so as the head of the corporation Finance Division, you are writing rules and advocating for them, and then you switch to the general counsel's position now, all of a sudden, you take a different view and the rule you were just working on, you say, <laughs> "Well, I don't know, there's some legal risk here. Like how did you change your hat?"
1: You know, it wasn't quite as sharp as that because most of the rulemaking, whenever there's a change of administration, kind of the rulemaking process tends to slow down until it's clear what the new chair wants to do, what the agenda is going to be. So when I was in court, Finn, we started, we put out a request for information related to climate and human capital. But. We did not start an actual rulemaking pro- project yet because we weren't really sure what the new chair would think. So we just solicited public input. We knew that would be useful if it was a rulemaking, but we didn't know exactly which direction it take. So I didn't, so there really weren't actually moments when I was in court, Finn, that we, that we kind of leaned into rule writing. The only exception was in the, the rule that just got adopted this past week, universal proxy, which had already been on the table, had already been proposed long ago. And then we reproposed it and then it finally got finalized. Um, that was one. But that one, I did not change my views very much because it's, frankly, it's been an issue that's been kicked around forever and not much happened between February and, and, and November in, in that space.
0: So let's talk about rulemaking for a moment and switch gears a little bit. And I want to refer back to a series of articles you wrote about several years ago on cost-benefit analysis. And you actually engaged in a debate with other academics uh, some at the University of Chicago, Eric Posner and Glenn Weil, about how federal regulation should incorporate cost-benefit analysis. Can we just start by having you tell us, like, why you pursued that line of inquiry? Why was that an important question to ask?
1: Yeah, I had known about the role of economic analysis, but kind of got brought up against it a few times because I was tracking rules that got caught up in litigation where the economic analysis ended up mattering to the court and and actually was a basis for court decisions. Some against the SEC, some against other agencies that I tracked, sometimes in favor of the SEC, but in any event, it was clearly a live issue. So I started learning about it, all right, that's one connection. Then as an academic working in at the intersection between law, finance, economics. A traditional policy perspective is what's welfare maximizing, like what kind of law would in fact increase welfare, which frankly is just basically cost-benefit analysis, except through a slightly different vocabulary and lens. And so I kind of had already been thinking about for many, many years, what would go into good cost-benefit analysis of various kinds of regulatory interventions. And I knew from that academic work that it's really hard, that it's so hard that to my knowledge, even to this day, despite having asked my friends at Chicago and elsewhere for a good example, I'm yet to see a good example of cost benefit analysis that truly cashes out everything you'd want to know and resolves the question in some way that any like broad group of people could agree on. I, not one for any major rule. And I still am looking. If anybody listening has, has an example for me, send it to me. I then finally had been reading about some. Political activity, legislative activity, and then been asked about it actually by some staffers in Congress about you know bills proposing to to change the law relevant to cost benefit analysis in ways that would have made it even more powerful and a more important um, tool. And I just kept thinking, it's like like it. This there's a big mismatch between what I think in good faith some politicians thought could be done and what some judges, less clearly to me, always in good faith were thinking should have been done and actually what could be done and and I you know I sit around the room like as you do as an academic listening to people talk about essentially economic analysis of various regulations and I like just had been there so often listening to the bottom line of the conversation was we don't know there's five more things that we haven't even tried to tackle yet that would be first order important to the outcome of that. So that 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 whole package is how I got into it. It was just a gap between what people were thinking in various domains and, and what actually was practical.
0: So you're saying that cost benefit analysis fails. Maybe it fails, as you said, once in a paper, its own cost benefit analysis test. Uh, but what is the what is the alternative? I mean, absent a cost-benefit analysis, you didn't like the legislation being proposed. Is there a better solution than what currently exists? Yeah. So a, a really important point I wanted to make in in
1: what I wrote up is there's a there's a difference between doing the analysis, which I believe in, like I, to state it again, as an academic, I do cost-benefit analysis of, of regulation. I think that's a very useful activity. I think it's mainly useful because it Pushes thought along more in, in a more disciplined way, but not because it answers questions. It just, it helps you see better ways of trying to answer questions. All right. So that, so I believe in cost benefit analysis. And I, I think the agencies should do it because I think it helps them. I think it helps them think more clearly. But there's a big difference between that and having a court, perhaps drawing on a statute, review a rule. That an agency has adopted and then second guessing how they did their economic analysis and to basically do its own economic analysis except like uninformed by generalist judges with advocates lawyers on both sides arguing about the details of how to generate a point estimate what's the right confidence interval and what's the right data source and how reliable it is and courts just are not capable of doing that effectively so i so my strong it fails is it fails the idea that there could be detailed judicial review. On the other hand, I'm in favor of fully funding economic units within the agencies and having them play a major role in the rulemaking process from the beginning, and not just as decoration at the end for court purposes, but actually have them in the the initial brainstorming sessions. Because I think, again, good economic analysis efforts, let's, let's put it that way, efforts at economic analysis will be an important, it stimulates thought that otherwise wouldn't occur.
0: In 2012, after a series of court losses, the SEC implemented its own economic analysis guidance and the chair at the time testified to Congress that the agency would follow it. You've referenced it before when you were on the IAC and the SEC failing to adhere to its own guidance. And I'm wondering, do you like that guidance? Should it be changed? Is it right on? And you know, has the agency been adhering to it? And if not, when haven't they been? So, to my
1: knowledge, while I was there, we followed it. Um, it was part of what I kept asking. I think the staff of the various rural writing divisions, as a matter of course, will do the right thing. And the guidance is there. They'll inv- they'll they'll involve the economic dira the. Vision of economic and risk analysis in the process at the right stage. And they, they need, and then they very much depend on them to write the portions of the rule releases that are designed to respond to the legislative expectation and and judicial expectation of some detailed economic analysis in the releases. So there is a process in place that, that occurs. I do think sometimes there are political policy interventions that shape the way what gets put into the release gets put into the release or what gets actually considered or not and I in, in my role in the IEC I did think I saw places in some of the rule writings that was going on at the time that did not seem to be tracking the internal guidance mainly about consistency and presentation of all relevant data because I like again just to restate I don't think in the end the economic analysis will ever, if certainly not often, resolve whether a given rule is a good or a bad idea or which of several alternatives are, are the best. It might rule some out. It, like It could like flunk some, but I don't think in the end it's going to necessarily resolve these questions. But I do think the public has a right to know that if there's data available, it should be presented. And if there's a type of analysis that has been done, that should be presented. And I, I'm, I, I very much believe that. I think the agency does that for the most part. In terms of the existing guidance, A little mindful that I don't want to like create burdens for the existing chair Jessica Walker, who's a wonderful economist, but I do think eventually it should be rewritten. And it's not because it's bad now, but it's just a little bit out of date. It draws on case law that's old. It needs to be a little more practical, and it needs to match a little bit what has been done, like what can feasibly be done. And there's some things that can pretty reliably be done, like roughly estimating the size of the market impact. As a whole, like how many institutions are going to be affected, how many individuals will be affected, those kinds of things. And then you can also use the kind of typical welfare analytic frameworks to identify the major categories of costs and benefits. I actually think that exercise is more important than is appreciated. It, the guidance calls for it, but I just think it should. Use, I think
0: it could use more emphasis. You're, you're referring. You're referring to the baseline analysis. Just describe the market, what it looks like, stylized facts, who's in it. Yeah, and just to give some magnitude of the importance of issues. Is that what you're referring to? That's the first piece, and then the second
1: piece is what you and I think. I think we would just think of as you know framing what's the market failure. Right. Like, I, 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 trying to understand, like, what's the motivation on, and then what's the, the, the counter argument? Like, why would the market failure not be a real market failure? That basic kind of theoretical exercise, it's not going to be able to be cashed out with numbers, I don't think, typically. But I do think theoretically and conceptually, it, it could really help. And I, I think it gets under, that part of it gets underemphasized.
0: Did you, uh, ask that question in any of your meetings with staff? Like, When they're bringing up an idea to do something did you ever like say hey well what's the failure we're trying to solve we i did i mean i you know in some
1: cases it's sort of so long-standing this is an example of when i said earlier academics can be useful because we like to start from first principles and so that's what this is it's okay you guys have been working and doing disclosure for however many years 80 years what is it now 90 years And that that can obviously be quickly anchored on asymmetric information and uncertainty and try to figure out how to overcome the the market failures that occur when a lemons market arises, et cetera. So there's pretty simple answers, but those often fall out and people just jump to what's the marginal change in the disclosure rule that we want to make without going back to the beginning and saying, like, what exactly? Let's keep in mind what we're trying to do here. And yes, I did do that. And I thought it was helpful on a couple
2: of occasions. So the January 20th Biden memo directed federal agencies to modernize the regulatory review in the context of cost-benefit analysis to promote, among other things, social welfare, racial justice, environmental stewardship, human dignity, equity, and the interests of future generations. After reading this memo, what were your first impressions on how this should or could be applied to financial regulation?
1: Well, in candor, it didn't change much because the issues it's addressing were already kind of imminent in conversations. In fact, that was part of why I came on board was even before inauguration, before Biden was president, it seemed to me pretty clear that the next Democratic SEC chair would, whether they liked it or not, need to address these issues in some way. And I had some ideas. And so I w- I wanted to come in and, and participate in that. So the memo, while helpful in, in kind of the public conversation and also i think helpful in encouraging cross-agency work that doesn't always happen easily wasn't like a major driver of of how i was thinking about things it it, and just to spell that out the epa obviously works in the space the agriculture department is quite active in this area which was surprised to me but when you think about a little bit about you know carbon sequestration and agriculture's intersection. That's not maybe not so surprising. Go down the list, there's Department of Transportation. There's a lot of different agencies that are all working on different pieces of it. And agencies don't always work well together. And I think having the memo kind of be an umbrella encouragement for interagency cooperation was helpful even in the time I was there.
0: On that point, the the, the directive is aimed at executive branch agencies. The SEC is not. There's always been some fuzziness about to what extent The SEC actually needs to follow cost-benefit analysis as envisioned by OMB Circular A4. Has that issue been discussed in terms of how the SEC should respond to that? Is it going to apply to them?
1: I think, you know, in practice, it's a little fuzzier than it might seem from a distance. And the reason is, even though the agency is independent, chair serves at the pleasure of the president, and so the chair cares what the president thinks. And so if somebody's telling the president that the chair of an independent agency is doing a terrible job by ignoring executive order or its goals, then that will matter. And chairs who are intelligent and politically thoughtful know that. And so it all kind of gets a little gray in practice. So unless an executive order is really sharp and somehow inconsistent with the goals of the independent agency, I don't think in in practice there's too much of a distinction for something. Because the executive orders also tend to be a little bit vague. I mean, like they they don't translate directly into action often. Now, the EA one that you're raising, the OMB, that that is specific, right? Because that means you got to, if you're subject to it, you got to route things through OMB. There's a process it sets up. And the agency, SEC, does not follow that. I think it should not, because I don't think the OMB would add much. Because, as wonderful as they are, they're actually they fewer economists than the SEC does, and they don't tend to focus on financial markets. So, I'm not really sure what adding another layer of economists looking at the same thing from a generous perspective would, would add. I also think some of what's in the circular itself needs updating, like the fact that it uses fixed discount rates. That never change over time, despite the fact that we're currently, I think, in a negative or slightly, maybe we're slightly positive uh, interest rate environments for certain durations. But like you know, it, it, it's as guidance. certainly
0: negative interest rates. Yeah.
1: So like you know, I don't know. I I've always I always use it as a as a laughing point when I teach finance that you know the standard government guidance on this is pick two rates which you're supposed to use all the time three or seven and they never change even though if you follow any model of the equity risk premium it certainly fluctuates not to mention risk free rates anyway so i you know my own view of that guidance is it was great for the time it was written but it too needs updating in light of you know the fact that most agencies now do it pretty well or at least better than they did in 1970 and so i i don't know one other thing i would say is i think government well-intended people have ended up making it really hard to do good change and even good change that is consensus good and it's not just adding regulation which is like sort of a standard republican way of thinking that we're going to slow everything down that's good because it'll stop regulation well guess what it also slows down deregulation it slows down re-regulation it slows down any change of any kind and i the, the circular to me is just one example of of how that um slows things down
2: if applied to the sec And given your most recent experience and prior research on the need for cost benefit analysis, how should it be implemented? What specific policies do you think it would most easily be applied to?
1: So I I think, again, the, the most important practical things that can usefully be done are kind of scoping the domain of a given regulation and its alternatives and providing whatever data the agency has that the public could use to help understand that. Second, to do first principles, like why are we intervening? What 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 problem are we trying to solve? And where does that lead our thought in terms of alternatives or pros and cons? I also think another thing that's not part of the current economic analysis practice, either in executive agencies or at the SEC, is I actually think... We should find a way through law to basically get courts completely out of the job of reviewing what's done at the beginning, but in return, the agencies need to commit to have some kind of data gathering over you know three five ten whatever the right year horizon is, and then revisiting the rule and and revisiting the economic analysis with whatever data they've gathered in that time frame now, like anyone who's at all thoughtful about like measuring effects of things in life we'll get it. But you, you just don't know what's going to happen in advance, which is the way economic analysis is now done until you do it. And then when you do it, things change and you can observe that and you have much more confidence actually in the impact of the rule over time. So why in the world we do all this stuff up front and pretend that it's somehow a crystal ball when in fact we know we're going to learn a lot more over time, I just have never understood. Having said that, in order to do what I just said would be a lot harder than just rewriting the guidance. It would require, to go back to where I started, a different funding model because the agency would have to be able to dedicate people to doing something over three, five, ten year horizon. And right now they, they fund in annual cycles and they have all these pressures on them to do all these other things. So you need to have willingness on the part of Congress to let independent agencies commit. To certain multi-year projects to track rules and evaluate them over time. I think if people were open-minded and thoughtful about that, we could go. We could make it much, much better than it currently is. Right now, it's just a good tool for thought. I think with that kind of flexibility that I'm talking about, you could actually make it work in ways that in theory everybody ought to agree with
0: do we do we need a self-funding model that was considered following the global financial crisis and ultimately it it didn't go through but should the sec in your view be self-funded you know i in my naive not subject to appropriations in
1: my in my naive youth of 10 years ago i i was all in favor of that i guess in principle i still am i think more practically given congress's reluctance to let go of any power uh of any general matter what i would instead suggest is what I was kind of like, there should be exceptions, like the fine annual funding for 80% of the budget, but then there ought to be dedicated streams attached to specific projects, which Congress can review in advance, but then Congress kind of would commit in effect to let that be then funded over a multi-year period. I think we've done that in some areas with like real estate purchases and the like. I don't see why it couldn't be done for um, programmatic purposes too.
0: So I wanted to switch, and we're we're getting close to the end of our time with you, and I wanted to switch to a specific rule, one that just came up to the extent that you can talk about it. Just earlier this week, the SEC on a split vote proposed new rules for uh, proxy voting advice, and in particular, it rescinded two rules adopted by the commission just in the summer of 2020 that have been in effect, uh, in effect for less than a year. The rules adopted last year would have required proxy advisory firms like ISS and Glass Lewis, who give advice to investors, particularly institutional investors, uh, on how to vote uh, their shares of public companies at annual meetings. Um, and they would also have to disclose what they were saying about the companies to the companies, and then make investor clients aware of any response the company may have. And Commissioner Lee, at the time, issued a really strongly worded dissent, saying these requirements were unwarranted, unwanted. Unworkable, and there was no market failure. This would harm the government process and suppress the free exchange of uh, shoulder voting rights. In her dissent, she cited you in a comment letter you wrote with Barbara Roper when both on the IAC that also criticized the rule. And now that we have this proposing release, we see the reversal, Commissioner Roisman and Commissioner uh, and issued a similarly harsh dissent, uh, saying that a decade's worth of evidence was collected for the 2007 or 2020 rules, and the rollbacks are inappropriate. And he also cited you in his dissent, in his first <laughs> footnote, he solved the problem of 12 and referring to roughly 12 individuals who have practical power over the majority of US companies and pointed out we have a problem of two and two main proxy advisory firms. And so can you help us sort all that out? Like what's going on here? What's the problem and what's the solution? Sure.
1: So first let's just make sure we're clear on the the, the current state of things. The Action the commission took this week is just a proposal, so it's not done yet, and it's inviting comment, and people can comment, and if they agree with Commissioner Roisman, they can say so. And I think Gary Gensler is, you know, open-minded on these topics. I don't think he has a foreclosed view of, of these issues, so that's important. Second thing I'd say is most, in my opinion, of what was important in the year ago rulemaking was not proposed to be changed. So the key things that were added were conditioning certain kinds of exemptions for um, proxy advisors when they're making conflict of interest disclosures. And for whatever reason, that had never been formally required and that's still in place. And I think that's the biggest gain from what was done a year ago. There's a thing that's not Formally part of the recent proposal that is in the mix here that, that people ought to be aware of, which is the, the commission was sued by the proxy advisors for that rulemaking because it didn't follow the right APA process according to them. And they didn't do the right economic analysis according to them. And, and it violates the first amendment, um, because it directly would have affected their ability to speak to their own clients. And if you frame it that way, like, you know, the agency's forbidding somebody from advising a client of theirs, that does seem a little bit, you know, it certainly at a, at a first pass, like, why is that okay? So that's out there, that lawsuit is still pending. And the ability of the agency, of the SEC in particular, to regulate effectively in light of the First Amendment is a first order policy consideration. If If courts start routinely just Coming into rulemaking and saying, that's not a good rule. And that's not a good rule because it affects speech. That will, that would be a, a, an earthquake in, in the landscape for how SEC functions. So this is not a trivial thing that can kind of be just brushed aside. Now, it's not really formally part of what the, the SEC just proposed yesterday or two days ago, but it, it should be understood in the background as you think about what they did propose. What they did propose was to be clear that they were not suggesting as many people had read a year ago rulemaking to suggest that the advisors could be sued for what a court might think was a reckless misstatement of opinion or a an unfounded opinion and a lot of what the proxy advisors do is offer opinions. They 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 present facts, but they also ultimately give recommendations, which are discretionary in nature, and it's fundamentally an opinion. Like, do you think the CEO is overpaid or not? That's kind of a judgmental call. You can have data to help support your analysis, but the data is not going to answer that question because there's no natural counterfactual to, to test. And a lot of people became concerned about last year's rulemaking, that it was inviting effectively companies to sue the advisors uh over opinions of that kind. And the reason that now commissioner Royceman is dubious about that, he he thinks it's much more about facts. The reason that that's not at all clear, at least to me and certainly was not to commissioner Lee, was that the evidence that that the uh advisors were publishing mistaken facts and persisting in publishing mistaken facts over some period of time knowingly like has never been established. And so Go back to what we were talking a few minutes ago. I think it was a fair question she asked. What's the market failure if there's no evidence of bad information being provided? And there really was not good evidence to warrant, in my opinion, a regulatory intervention a year ago. To be clear, the rule doesn't, you know, the proposed change doesn't really change the rule. It just changes the guidance that was built into the commentary about when and how advisors could be sued. All right. So that's all along with now. In terms of my problem with 12 paper, why Commissioner Roisman is citing me now, I, I appreciate the citation boost I'll get from that. I think he's misconstruing a little bit the landscape. The index funds already own, own; they don't just influence, they own more than 20% of the stock of most companies and it's going up every year. And, and, and I think most projections show it'll be about 50% if it continues uh, over the next 20 years. So that's, that that's like they directly vote those shares the advisors have an influence now there's a debate about how much but they don't control votes they influence them by providing advice if you took if you kill them like if tomorrow we passed a law banning advisors the votes would largely look the same because the advisors listen to the same community of corporate governance folks that that are available to talk to asset managers and that are sometimes in-house asset managers And they would continue to vote largely in the same ways, I think, even without them. So problem of two, I think is a little bit overstating it. I do worry about the index funds. That's why I wrote that paper, problem of 12. And I'll note that there's nothing in the proxy advisor rule that addresses it. And so far there is no regulatory addressing of that, of that power problem right now. BlackRock, Larry Fink, Vanguard, go down the list of the major providers. They actually directly vote at levels that are unprecedented and in some ways I agree with what they're doing I think climate change is a problem and they all do too and so they're pushing that agenda but that's interesting because they're doing it on behalf of thousands of dispersed investors of their own who are not directly being asked anything about their about their policy position so I think that's that's a bigger problem and one that I would like rank two levels above the proxy advisor problem
0: so do both sides have a have a view on this, it seems like proxy advisory firms are caught in the middle between issuers really not liking advice against their, what they believe is what should be done. And asset managers saying, there are 4,000 shareholder meetings, we can't do it all ourselves. We need some way to you know coordinate that activity and get advice, but hey, we're still voting the shares. I mean, do both sides have a point? Is it reconcilable yeah, I, or is this always gonna here's be? Here's
1: what I would say. I think that boards and managers <laughs> all else equal, would, would prefer their shareholders to just, you know, follow the Wall Street walk and sell if they don't like what they're doing and not vote. They they would rather not have governance at all. <laughs> like, I understand it. I used to work at Wachtell. It was annoying. We had to deal with shareholders who didn't like what the board was doing. But they, of course, recognize that's unrealistic. And in order to keep their cost of capital down, they got to pay attention to what their shareholders as a whole care about. They know that deeply about the index funds. So even though, The Chamber and the Business Roundtable and lots of corporate groups are quite critical of proxy advisors. You rarely hear them going after the index funds. Why? Because the index funds actually own their shares. Proxy advisors, again, are like easy targets for them to beat up on because they don't own their shares and they kind of know they're not going to directly be able to have a relationship with them uh, of the same kind that they do with their own shareholders. The advisors are not perfect and I I get that there may be ultimately concerns about the way they process information but again i go back to like imagine we killed them tomorrow that they were banned i don't think we'd go back to a world in which asset managers just would not vote they'd vote but what they'd end up doing is following the index funds because they have corporate governance staffs who do much of what the advisors do and i think you'd end up with much of the same kinds of outcomes that the boards don't like they you know boards just would rather not have the pressure at all so I guess what I would say is, let me remind boards and people thinking about it from that perspective. You can put out any counter you want to what the advisors say, like, and and you can do it with shareholder money because you run the company. So you actually can kind of, in some sense, you know, you're, you're, you're being subsidized even by the people who disagree with you to argue about whether they should disagree with you. So just fight the fight, like, make the case make the case to the other shareholders and recognize you got advisors who have a point of view and that's like anybody else in life i mean the same thing occurs by the way in the basic asset pricing right analysts think that your business model i mean is wrong and they say so and then you have to argue with them in order to keep your price up same thing in the voting context i don't quite see why this is so fraught myself honestly
0: Well, John, we got through about half the questions we wanted to ask you, but we're mindful of time. I'm long-winded. Sorry. (laughs) uh, It was a great discussion. I'm going to turn it to uh, Nathan, who opened it, and ask him to close it for us.
2: Thank you, Professor. Now that you have the trifecta of industry, academic, and government service, what is your biggest takeaway on the efficacy of the regulatory process? I, I
1: think my biggest takeaway is that more attention should be given to aligning the way that regulatory agencies are funded and managed and how they hire and can't hire people that they need. And regardless of your political point of view, like whether you wanna be adding or taking away or rewriting rules, they need people and they need to be able to be staffed adequately. If they're not staffed adequately, just stuff kinda goes sideways. And I, I don't think right now for most of the independent agencies, Some of them have good funding models and others don't. And that's my biggest takeaway.
0: John, thanks so much for joining us. It's been terrific.
1: Happy to do it, guys. Thank you for the conversation. It was fun.
0: In preparing for this episode, as part of our background research, I was able to relive part of my past in which there's a lot of discussion about what an economic analysis of a proposed rule should be. John had published a number of articles on the issue and at one point we sat on a panel together and provided different views. As John explained in this episode, he believes that economists and the economic principles underlying a lot of their work are an important part of the rulemaking process and should be integrated into the decision-making of an agency like the SEC because it pushes along thought in a disciplined way and helps an agency think more clearly and see better ways to do things. And that we both agree. But he also believes there are strict limits to what an economic analysis can do, and doubts the quantification of all costs and benefits can ever be done or lead to neat and easy answers. As for my part, I agree there are limitations in what an economic analysis can do, and quantification can be difficult, if not impossible, when it comes to measuring potential future benefits. But I don't think that is a reason to make cost-benefit analysis requirements easier Regulators should try hard, really hard, to estimate the potential effects of their actions. Perhaps most importantly, John also points out what I think is an unappreciated, underappreciated aspect of cost-benefit analysis. That is, it's done before a rule is implemented in anticipation of potential future effects, but it's not done after a rule is in effect when the outcomes can actually be observed and evaluated. It might come as a surprise to some that there's no affirmative requirement for regulators to do that and John thinks there should be. And members of Congress have, from time to time, talked about making it a requirement, but that hasn't happened yet. And as John recognizes, making it a requirement would put additional burdens on agencies like the SEC, and it may take a different funding model and a willingness on the part of Congress to commit to multi-year projects, which doesn't fit into the current annual and often controversial appropriations framework. Our series today is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests, and of the University of Texas at Austin. Today's executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tar of the Moody's College of Communication.